Uh, I'm going to get started right away. I would like you to take your Bibles, if you have them physically on you, or your phones or your tablets, uh, and turn them to James chapter 3. It's going to take a little while to get there, uh, but we're going to be camping out in James chapter 3, and we're going to be talking about something that does not affect some of us, it affects absolutely all of us. I have never in my life met somebody who could take this message and go, wow, that was, that was for someone else. You could do that, but you would be a liar. And so because you are human, because you are not perfect, because you have a mouth, this affects you. And I know a lot of us in the Midwest, we're not really aggressive, we're passive aggressive, but are there any exceptions to that in church this morning where you just kind of tell it like it is? And you know, I already know you, I'm looking at you, I know who you are, and for me personally, I'd prefer that. I don't like when people think things and don't say them, so for me, that's comfortable. But I think the downside of that is you have a bit of a self-diagnosed mouth on you. And so maybe for you, uh, just your words have always been an issue. I want to start with a little trivia. How many words do you think? I actually messed up this stat last service. I was looking at it, and the math didn't add up. So I'm just going to tell you the end goal. How many of you, uh, how many of you think that in the course of a lifetime, the average person speaks more than 50 million words? Okay. And I'm just going to average it all out, men and women. I know that whole debate. How many of you think it's more than 500 million words? 500 million words. Anybody? Someone's saying yes, but no one's right there. The, here, here's the reality. They would project now, they did a study in 84, that the average life expectancy was 86, and the average lifespan of words was 860 million words. Now, I, I don't know. I think for me, I'm over that. I, I'm just a chatterbox. I was raised by a pack of wolves. You know, they say men talk less than women. Not so much. Not so much. I can out-talk you all day long by virtue of right now. Um, my best friend's in town. He just left this morning. We grew up together. We are like, we, we are chatty Cathy's. We can diagnose things five different ways over the course of a three-hour meal over some Mexican food. I'm just probably the exception to the rule of being a man, but I will tell you, that can also get you in trouble. And so I want to talk about that this morning and just the power that words have and the power they have for good and the power they have for evil. And, and I just want to kind of preface it with a few things. One of them is this. Christians... Christians are the worst, amen? You, you will never find a trash talker like a regular churchgoer. And so we are clever, though, because we want to be godly and we don't want to be gossipers, and we'll get into that in a little bit, too. And so we disguise our holiness under this thing called what? Does anybody know it starts with a P? Prayer. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. And that's just a way of saying sometimes if someone's heart's not right, let me gossip about you. But it's not gossip. It's a prayer request. Here's the other thing that I think all of us walk in as we, we kind of wrap our arms around this topic, that when it comes to slander, when it comes to cutting words, we tend to, not all the time, some people are very self-deprecating, they're hard on themselves, but we tend to, in my, you know, my viewpoint, being an armchair sociologist, we tend to be harder on everyone else than ourselves. Let, let me give you an example. You're driving down 6th Avenue is what I told the first service. And uh, I'm driving down 6th Avenue because I'm the worst. Like, I, I can be a Christian until I get, you know, a steering wheel. And, and I'm driving down 6th Avenue, and then I make this blunder. I cut you off. And I say to myself, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. And then I drive further and don't think twice about it because, hey, we all make mistakes. 
Do you know where I'm going with this? We tend to be harder on everyone else, don't we? That same person in the 2013 Ford F-150 with knockoff rims is driving by you in Wendy's. You know, I'm the one cutting you off, and I cut you off, or you cut me off. Baby, let's follow the train logic, the logic train here. And I cut you off, or you cut me off, and I, and I look at you, and I was so forgiving towards myself. Oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I give a quick wave. Sorry, right? You cut me off, and I have a few choice words that are a little more critical than that. Hey, this person is an idiot. They're the worst. Where do they get their driver's license? McDonald's, you know, what are they, from California where all the weirdos are from? You know, I could say a whole lot of things because I tend to, with my words, be harder on everyone else than myself. And so we tend to, as a church, as a Christian people, we tend to look at this sin like it's not that big of a deal. And then James comes along and he absolutely makes it a huge deal. He uses metaphor, he uses analogies that we can all walk in, we're gonna cover today, and he's the half-brother of Jesus, and he absolutely makes it a very, very big deal. But before we ever get to James, I wanna look at what Jesus, his brother, says, because he makes it an even bigger deal. He says in Matthew 12, and I don't have it on the screen, I just wanted to read this to you. He says, I tell you, and this is scary stuff, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every, every careless word that they speak. He says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so if the magic number is a billion words in your lifetime, or 860, who, who knows what it is, it just falls under this bucket of a lot. That he has, because he's God, this database, and it's all covered by the blood of Jesus, thank God, or we'd all be condemned. And there's going to be this day of judgment, this day of reckoning, where we give an account for everything we did, and Jesus sits down with us, and he, you know, it's our meeting time, and he says, hey, Rodney, I just want to go through a few things. Bam! Billion words. Careless. Gossip. Think I'm better than everyone else. I mean, you know, Immoral words, immoral jokes, all, all of these things that I've seen, the, the text, the, the things that are supposed to be funny, the things that I've, well, all of this stuff, God is, is, is all-knowing and he's omnipresent and that he is seeing all of these things and I'm a pastor and James is going to talk harshly to pastors in just a second too and he's saying, man, th this is what you've done. This is what you're accountable for. Every word, every comment, all of it traceable. Terrifying reality. And so James comes along in chapter three. It's very practical. He says, faith without works is dead. There's, there's a doing portion to living out the gospel. And he starts talking about the power of the tongue. And what I want you to write down is there's a few things about the tongue. It's in the disciplines of a godly man. But there's a few things about the tongue that I want to cover. The first one is this. The tongue has intrinsic power. And what I mean by that, what the book means by that, is that by virtue of its design, it's powerful. It's small, what James is going to say, but it's powerful. It's, it's small, but it packs a mighty punch, and it can do good or bad. But it has built into it, intrinsically, in the wiring of it, the way it's designed, it has power given by God. And words that can speak life are words that can be, speak death, and so we need to take it seriously is what James is saying. Specifically, I'm going to read it to you, verse 1, chapter 3. He says, not many of you should become teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. If there's any verse I could take out of the Bible, it might be that one. 
He says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And so here is the first analogy. He says, if we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they will obey, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So the first analogy is this idea of the tongue being like a horse, but more specifically, the bit of a horse. And so how many of you are horse riders? It's South Dakota, last service, like 50 people raised their hand. How many? How many of you have ever ridden a horse? More than two miles an hour. Like half the hands went down, right? I have not done that. I have ridden on a horse about two miles an hour. That's it. I, I was in, uh, for the 4th of July, I was in the metropolis of Mobridge. And Greg's is a family. They're all from there. And, uh, and just a bunch of people went down there, some people, some college students, some young adults, they, they, they went down to Mobridge, and he said, you got to come to Mobridge. Every year he's been telling me, you got to come to Mobridge. There's this really cool thing. There's a rodeo. I have never in 42 years, living in Aberdeen 20 years, been to a rodeo. How many of you have been to a rodeo? The guy called me out. He said, who's here? It's the first time at a rodeo. Someone kind of raises my hand for me. There's a few thousand people in the crowd. He's like, you've never been to a rodeo, young man? And I'm like, well, I said, young man, but 42, how old are you, 42, where are you from, Aberdeen? You're from Aberdeen, South Dakota, and you've never been to it. I mean, just made me look like an idiot in front of all of these people. But I had never been to a rodeo, and it was amazing. And there's a lot of things that were amazing about it. It was the most patriotic thing I'd ever done. It definitely felt like a fish out of water, kind of a weird experience. But what was so amazing were the animals. And there are these different events. They take forever, and then there's a fireworks show, and by that time, everyone had been drinking a lot of communion so, you know, they were kind of tipsy, but, but by the time it got done, I was, I was definitely ready to go. But there were all these events that were taking place, and the coolest one to me was the barrel races, right? Because now you have these women who are about like 120, 130 pounds. Uh, they're kind of all done up, and then they're just absolutely dominating these horses, these independent wild creatures that they weigh a half ton, all muscle, and they dominate these things. They, they do whatever they tell them. Horses are so intelligent. They're going through these barrels. They're stopping on a dime. They're sprinting. They're slowing down. They're, they're roping calves. The horses are, are wherewith it enough to, to pull back on the rope. So they help rope the calf. They're just like these little genius animals that are full of muscle. And these little, petite, mostly women are dominating these horses. Why? Because they have this little thing in their mouth called a bit, and with it, they control the rest of the body. And that's what James is saying. He's saying the tongue is like that. It's small, but it's powerful. I mean, the horse is a brilliant creature. I, I was thinking when I was watching these horses do all these things, man, my dogs are so stupid. <laughs> I, I have these two dogs. They are dumb. I've got this one dog. He's kind of cute. And he's kind of not as cute as the other dog. And I act like I'm going to throw something. He'll take off for miles in the pasture. Miles. Stupid. I told him to come in this morning. He went to the bathroom. He stared at me for like five minutes. And I thought, man, you are so much dumber than a horse that stops on a dime, that goes right and goes left. And it's all controllable, independent creatures, completely dependent by this little implanted bit where they are now able to maneuver the way that they're told, and that bit has power. It's small, but it's powerful. And so James says that. Look at what he says next. He says, look at the ships also. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are large, 
and are driven by strong winds. This is before motors, obviously. He said they are guided by a very small rudder. And wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also is the tongue, small, a small member, yet it boasts of great things. He says it's like a horse or a bit in a horse's mouth. He says it's like, a, it's like a rudder on a ship where it can have this devastating effect if it goes in the wrong direction. And it's powerful in that way. There's this uh, ship that I, I learned about this week, and some of you kind of history buffs, you like the whole World War II scene. I was listening to someone else talk about this. He said there was this ship in 1940 built by the Nazis, and it, it was known as the Bismarck. Is anyone familiar with that? You kind of have a history, you know about the Bismarck. I didn't know about it. And he, he said this, that, that the Bismarck was kind of like the Titanic in that it had this arrogance to it. It was 825 feet long, and, and it was known as unsinkable. In fact, it was an absolute war beast. And so uh, most ships, battleships, would fire off ammunition that had 8-inch rounds. This thing had 15-inch rounds to it, and it had a targeting computer that for 1940 was unheard of in its technological advancement. And it was so precise that in its, one of its first battles, it faced the HMS Hood, the pride of the Royal Navy, and it took, the Bismarck took this thing out with one single shot. And so everyone's scared of what the Nazis can do because now they have this domination at the sea. And as the story unfolds, it's, it's this beast, and it was like it would show up to, you know, uh, with a bazooka to fight a bunch of people with Nerf guns. It, it wasn't even close. But the Royal Navy started learning more about the ship, and as grand as it was, it had one small but fatal flaw. It had a vulnerable rudder that it was exposed right beneath the terminal exhaust port. I have no idea what that means. But... In May 24th, 1941, the Royal Navy attacked the ship, and it took a torpedo, and it hit that exposed rudder, and the boat was severely disabled and attacked until defeated, and the ship came down because one torpedo found the rudder and rendered it dead in the water. And so from that, there's this history lesson. From that, there was a saying, because what happened is somebody, that's, that's a picture I found on Google, that's at the bottom of the ocean now, Right? But from that, somebody arrogant in the Nazi party started talking. This thing is a big deal, but it has a weakness. That transferred oil to the, over to the Royal Navy. They capitalized on it, and then from that came a famous saying that maybe you've heard, that loose lips sink ships. Have you heard that before? That's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. The enemy can find your weakness no matter how strong you think you are. Translate that to your own life. Translate that to your own family. Translate that to your own marriage that you've built this empire, but at any point, your ship can sink by this little thing called your mouth that's not under control. It has been devastating in your life because you don't have that rendered under control. And a torpedo has hit the rudder, virtue of the tongue. Here's the last one of the analogies, verse six. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on the fire the entire course of life. And here's where it's so scary. It's set on fire by hell. The word hell is defined by this place, this physical space in the early church known as Guiana. 
And so it, it became, it was actually a place in the Old Testament that was wicked and evil, and they would do child sacrifices. And then as Jesus came along, it became this garbage dump where if you didn't have status or you were a criminal, you would be buried in this place. They would just throw you on the fires, and the trash was continually going to the fire dump. And it was this place that smelled, this this place that nobody liked, and it was referred to as hell. Because it was an eternal fire. You could look out from Jerusalem. You could see the smoke of the fire. And so James capitalizes on that understanding that everyone would have known about. And he says that's what it's like, this perpetual fire that's going, that's going off. And it starts, it all starts, not with a bit from a horse or not from a small rudder on a massive ship. It all starts, he goes further with it. He says it starts with this little spark, this little spark Anyone from California knows about these forest fires that are burning down, you know, a million acres, doing billions upon billions upon billions of dollars of damage, and it starts with some goofball that just flicks a cigarette on the I-5, and things just start burning, and it just takes a little bit to do massive damage. James is saying this on a very personal level. Someone said something that I, that I wrote down this week. I thought this was worth noting. I never thought about it like this, that James had a vantage point that most of us don't understand. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he had watched for the last 30 or whatever years, or by the time that this was written, a lot longer than that, he had watched throughout the duration of his brother's life someone who lived a perfect life and was trashed at every point of the process in his ministry. He knew of his mom who was a teenage, unmarried, pregnant girl. He had a, a cousin named John the Baptist, John the Baptist had his head chopped off and he was a victim of people saying horrible things about him that were not true. And then Jesus comes along in his earthly ministry. He speaks truth and he's slandered and he's mocked. And then he says he's gonna die for our sins and they say, well, let me just take you to that cross ourselves. They murder an innocent man and he watches this deadly poison, this restless evil take full effect and it started with sparks by the Pharisees. And so he saw all of these things take place and he says, this is like hell burning in our lives. This is terrible. Your tongue has intrinsic power by virtue of its design. For good and for bad. Verse seven, he says this. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, look on the screen if you don't have your Bible, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison, and with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. We're a church. We have the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to live differently. He says, does a spring pour forth with the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So the tongue has this intrinsic power by the way it's designed. But here's the second thing. It also has very destructive tangible power, and there's a way that it destructs. There's a way that it implodes relationally and on the peripheral all around us. There's things that we do that we all know we do, and this book defines, and I just want to walk through those real quick. You can read it on your own, but I'm going to cover it just for a few minutes. One of the ways that it has destructive power is the obvious, just gossip, just slander. 
And, and these aren't people that you say you hate. These are people that you pat on the back and tell them you love them. Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of the whisperer are like the delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And so what I said earlier was, in Christian circles, we know we're not supposed to gossip, so we just pray for them. And so, so we have this destructive power with our tongue. I was golfing because that's what pastors do, we golf. I want to tell you a very serious story uh, that Greg told the pastors at a spiritual retreat on the golf course. We were sitting down for lunch, and Greg said this to Micah and Chuck and I. He goes, you guys, there was a pastor's meeting just like this one not too long ago. And it was a time of reflection, and it was a time of vulnerability. It was a time of sharing. And there were only three pastors. There's four of us. There's only three pastors. They all pastored small churches. Uh, there was a Lutheran guy. There was a Methodist guy. And there was a Baptist guy. And uh, this is serious. It's not a joke. It's very serious. And uh, he said, the Lutheran guy said, you guys, I got I to be vulnerable with you. I'm struggling. And the church is just going terribly. And I come home at night, and I have like a fifth of whiskey. My wife doesn't know about it. Nobody knows about it. And they kind of go, wow, thanks for being vulnerable, you know. And then the, the next Methodist guy said, if you're going to be vulnerable, I'm going to be vulnerable. Every night, you know, I'm just, I'm tired of ministry. I've been burned out for like five years. I'm going to three different tri-parish situations in these small towns. And then I come home and I go to the casino and I've been gambling away a portion of my income. And the scariest part is my wife doesn't know. And so I don't know what to do. And the Baptist pastor goes, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you guys. I can't believe you guys are being so vulnerable. We all have issues. And he says, does anyone know where the phone's at? And they said, well, why do you need to know where the phone's at? He goes, well, my, my issue is gossip. Did you get it? Okay, that went terribly. First service. <laughs> that was like the worst joke ever. When Greg told that joke, it was so funny. And when I just told it, it was so incredibly cringy. But the idea, should, you're like, I'll never forget it, and I'll never forget how stupid you are. Uh, you have a problem with your tongue. We're going to move on. And so we gossip about each other. Here's another thing that we do, right? We, we don't just say it blatantly because we know that's wrong. Here's the cousin of gossip that's in the literature. It's innuendos, suggestive hints, in, insinuations of derogatory nature. And so I'm not going to talk directly about this person. We're just going to pray for him. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I'm going to give you enough information where you can kind of figure it out on your own if you're smart. It's going to be like in the form of a Christian riddle where I'm not going to actually say it. Or, or maybe the way that we slander is really through flattery. And here's how flattery is defined. Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face, Flattery is saying something to their face that you would never say behind their back. It's horrible. Proverbs talks three times about this idea of flattering tongues. Or maybe it's just straight up criticism. Criticism is defined by this. I've been asking Siri lately, what does this mean? What does that mean? What's the definition? Criticism, the beginning of the definition is the practice of judging. And I never had to practice much. I was just good at it. It's the practice of being judgmental. Criticism has massive destructive power. It's used to control people. It's used to manipulate people. It's used to self-soothe so you feel better about yourself. There's two types of people that are very critical. They're usually insecure or they have an inferiority complex, and so they tear you down. And these words have power, specifically for dads. Words have power. Kids remember things for their entire childhood that you say to them in the form of criticism. 
The last one, that the words that have power, is this idea that the book talks about as far as diminishment. And diminishment is the same thing as criticism, but it has a very specific goal. So it criticizes with an end goal. And the end goal of diminishment is I'm going to make you feel small and insignificant, and I'm probably going to do so for my own unhealthy reasons where I need to feel inferior to you because I'm actually very insecure. And so I'm going to diminish your value as a husband. I'm going to diminish your value as a father. And I am going to operate in this to tear you down so that, right, for whatever reason, you feel like you can't accomplish what God's called you to accomplish because I have issues and I'm projecting them onto you. And people that are emotionally abusive walk in all of these things. And the scary part is they don't stand outside of the church. They live within it. And Christians, we, we have this scapegoat. It's not one of the big deadly sins. It's not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so our words aren't that big of a deal. And it's our words that are separating us from a world that's going, if that's what Christianity is, look at me. I don't want anything to do with that. Because that person has a messed up heart. So James puts these things in front of us. And the last thing is this. What does a disciplined tongue look like? If these are the things that, or describing what it is, then, then what do you do if you don't have it? What, what is the difference? What is the trajectory of your life? How should it look different? If you are saying, this is how I lived before I was saved, I've become a Christian, I got baptized, my family doesn't know what's going on with me, I'm living differently, I wanna have a disciplined tongue. And so congratulations, it is one of the things that is a primary separator of you and the rest of the people that don't know Jesus. This can separate you, but what does it actually look like? Just two schools of thought that I wanna run by you. The first one is this, if you want to have a disciplined tongue, if you want to live differently, if you wanna heed advice from Jesus and his brother James, you have to, if you don't do this, I'm telling you, nothing changes if nothing changes. You have to set some boundaries up, write that down. In a world that is running rampant with information that is trashing people right and left, you have to. If your heroin is gossip, if that's your crack cocaine is finding out dirty stuff about people, you have to set up boundaries specifically with people once you become a Christian that you've always talked trash with. If you don't have those boundaries, I promise you you're going to fall right back into it. The, the, the reverend and theologian Clint Eastwood said, a man has to know what? You guys gotta wake up, I'm dying up here, okay? A man has to know his limitations. We're gonna go back to Clint Eastwood. You have to know what you can handle and what you can't handle, specifically regarding people. Some of us, we're prone to fight. Some of us, we are intoxicated by gossip. We are negative beyond negative, and it's destructive in our life, it's destructive in our family's life. And so what are those boundaries in your life where you're saying, I gotta live differently, and, and I know I need to pray more, I know I need to be in the word more, we're gonna get into that in a second, but I have to have practical boundaries in my life, and that's not a one-size-fits-all. You have to know you, and you have to go, Lord, what do you know that I need to not do anymore because I can't handle it, and I truly wanna live differently. I have to have these boundaries. One of them, for many of us, is you are gonna have to redefine what's appropriate and what's not appropriate online. I don't know about you, but, and I've been saying this for a long time, one of the best things I ever did was have very strict boundaries for myself and my family with social media because social media is crazy. 
I, I remember there's, there's some things I've done in parenting where I've gone, I'm gonna have this rule and that rule, and now when they're like 10 months from being an adult, I'm going, wow, that was over the top, right? There are other things that have actually worked, and one of them has been social media. That my kids are not constantly consumed with the next picture of their forehead at this point in their lives. And that's just me, you can do whatever you want, but what are the boundaries for, for the internet? What are your triggers? What do you need to do to unplug your phone and, unplug, and plug in your soul? Because some disagreements, there's just certain ways to have them, and you have to know you, right? You have to know that cocaine that you run to when you have to get your next fix to see how everyone else is a bigger idiot than you are. You have to know in wisdom that you cannot throw gasoline on the fire of your soul in this area of your life. And maybe, so here's the thing, maybe you're right, and a lot of times, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, you see all the stuff on social media, a lot of the times you are right and they are wrong, and as soon as you tell them, I promise you, it did nothing, it did nothing. I could tell you this in love, or how about I do this, how about I, you post it, and then I comment on it in front of about a thousand people, and I tear you down and tell you all the reasons that you're dumber than me, and let's just see how God's glorified in that situation. You have to have boundaries with a disciplined tongue. And so we don't disown people, but sometimes, but sometimes we have to disengage them, don't we? Sometimes we have to know when someone has to walk off the crazy train because it's just not working. And so running back to these dysfunctional relationships, it's like an emotional virus. You're emotionally sick and you're combative and you're aggressive and you're depressed. And you get this fix. I know it's not you, it's just me, right? You get this fix off of taking mud and slinging it. And then they throw it back at you and you catch it. And then you throw it back at them. And somebody on, you know, someone has to, with spiritual maturity, be like Jesus and just put it down. Put down the arsenal. Because it's not working. And Christians specifically, I just think we need to talk to ourselves for a second because this is who we are at New Life. Conservative evangelical Christians can be the worst mudslinger in the mudslinging business. We can remember all the big rules that make us religious and then we just ignore things like mudslinging and we justify it. Paul comes along and he says this, a popular passage at weddings, he says, love is patient. And then what does he say after that? Love is what? Kind. Kind. You have to set boundaries to be kind. But they said this, and they said that, and they started this, and I'm just, you know, this is my way of evangelizing by showing everyone how bad they are. I promise you it's ineffective strategies, ineffective strategies. They said this, and they did that. I mean, so what? So what? I went through a hard time four or five years ago, and there was some mudslinging, and it was terrible, and I hope I never have to go through it again. And I wasn't perfect in the situation, but I can tell you with certainty, someone spoke into my life, and they said this when I was going, but they said this, and they said that. They said to me, they said, Rodney, work on your character and trust Jesus with your reputation. Work on your character and trust Jesus Christ with your reputation. Someone has to get off the crazy train. Someone has to set boundaries, and here's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to fight our own battles. We don't even have to fight them. Christ goes before us. Christ in our place. We don't have to devour each other, and we might not always be right, and it just doesn't even matter. It's not even about that. We have to disengage at certain points. And so what are the boundaries for a disciplined tongue? 
And then the second piece is this, a disciplined tongue. This is the whole package. I'm hoping that this goes really well after that horrible joke. This is the closer. A disciplined tongue deals with the heart. It deals with the heart. If you don't get this, you miss everything. It deals with the heart. James, James says it. I'm going to move forward to James 4. You just, you just read it with me in your mind because unless you turn your Bible fast, it's not going to be on the screen. I just added this this morning. I wanted to cover this real quick. We're going to close. James 4.1 says this. Conviction. Ready? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James says, is it not this? All right, so what I would say to that is, what causes fights and quarrels among me? Well, the people around me, right? This is what James says. He says, that's not true. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And just a side note, he's talking to Christians. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James just said something that is an absolute gut check in the faith. What causes these quarrels? What causes this gossip? What causes this back and forth? What causes these sleepless nights? What causes all of that? Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, is saying. He's saying this. He's saying our biggest problems don't live outside of us. Our biggest problems, look at me, our biggest problem is right here in the heart. Our biggest problems don't live outside of us. They live inside of us. Until I deal with the heart level, nothing's going to change. And so if we're going to have a disciplined tongue, before we ever have a disciplined tongue, we have to have a disciplined heart. In fact, the way we treat others, according to Jesus, is a direct reflection of the condition of our heart. The way we respond when we're wronged reveals a great deal about the pride that's even living in our heart. James says, passions are at the heart of your conflict. Jesus makes this statement in Luke. He says, out of the abundance of the heart. Do you know what he says? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks that everything in the life of a Christian is not environmental. Everything in the heart of the Christian, everything, the godliness that comes out of us is just from what's already going on inside of us because this isn't behavior modification. This is heart change. That's why we give our heart to Jesus. We give our life to Jesus. And if you want to have a disciplined tongue, if you want to speak words of life, and you want to speak words of kindness, and you want to speak words of forgiveness over other people, you have to deal with your heart. You have to deal with your heart. Craig Rochelle says, when emotions are high, wisdom is low. And so we lash out. I want to close with this. I had this profound thought that I want to share with you. I don't know if you'll think it's profound, but I think it's good, okay? This is the closure. I, I thought of this about half an hour before I got up to first service. I was praying. I was praying with an elder. And, and I had this thought, it's something I've been guilty of. I've told my kids this, you've told your kids this, you've told probably a lot of people this, and a lot of people have told you this, that when you say something that is not godly, or you say something specifically as like a teenager where you're disrespectful, you'll have a parent look you in the eyes, and I know I've said these types of things to my kids. My youngest is almost 13, and she's a, she's a godly young girl, and she, she never says anything wrong, but sometimes she's a pistol like her mother, and, and so, so she'll, <laughs> she's in the back, she'll say these things, and so it's one of the things that I'll say to my kids, or I'll think to my kids, I'll say this, when they say something kind of crazy or disrespectful, I'll say this, think before you speak, who said that to your kid, 
You need to think before you speak, and, and that's part of growing up. And if you don't learn to do that, you'll never hold a job. You'll never do well in school. Are you getting parental with me? You'll never do anything. You'll never amount to anything. You need to think before you speak. And I had this thought while praying with an elder this morning that that is messed up advice because it's just biblically inaccurate, and it's even logically just not even possible. Here's what psychologists know about thinking. Before you ever say anything, you already thought it, and if you couldn't think, you would never be able to speak because everything you're saying, you've already thought. So that's clearly not the problem. To tell someone to think before they speak, they couldn't say the words if they didn't think them first. And you're going, well, that's okay, but you know, you're just getting into semantics. That's a big deal to me. Because here, here's what I've done in my own life. My heart's messed up, and I think messed up things, and I speak messed up things. And I want to live in this delusion that somehow my words live outside of me instead of understanding that, look at me, they're a manifestation of me. It's not thinking that's the problem, right? Thinking, thinking always happens. And so the better way to tell your kids when they're dealing with things that are ungodly is this, that you, you, don't, you think before you speak. But, but here's the epiphany I had. I don't need to think before I speak. I already did that. I need to repent before I speak. I need to go to the Lord and, and pray to him like the psalmist. You're creating me a clean heart, O oh God. Creating me a contrite spirit. Cast me not away from your presence, O oh Lord. Renew a right spirit in me. Because my problems are my thoughts and the solution, the solution, because the words are just a manifestation, the, the solution is that I have to deal with this at a heart level. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus' words were so much different than ours. They were harsh. They were straightforward. He's going to tell you how it is, but he's always doing everything in his perfect way with a trajectory of making us more like him in the process as he goes to that cross. Everything was rooted in a right heart for Christ. And his brother comes along and he says, this is how you're to live. This is how you're to talk. This is how you are designed. And so I just want, I just want to challenge us with that with us this morning as we close this thing out. Are your words bringing life to those around you? Or is your critical spirit tearing down the people you love the most? And are you justifying it for reasons that are not scriptural? Is your go-to to tear down or to build up? Because you have the power with that spark to start a massive forest fire. And here's the scary part, and I'm going to close in prayer. You have a massive forest fire of your hands that are creating a culture in your home that are going to have legacy, generational legacy to them if you don't change. Life-giving words, Christ-centered words. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, help us to have self-control that's rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit through an active prayer life where we're centered on you, through con consistent scripture reading where we're centered on you, and out of the abundance of that heart that we would speak words of life. We thank you for dying on a cross for our sins in our place, rising from death so that we can have new life. We thank you for allowing us to share your gospel each week. We pray this in your precious name. Everybody said... Amen. Amen. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.